Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Richard Thomas tells us about the Northwest Mounted Police, their history, their people, their legends, their myths, and the important role they had in opening up Canada. The eagle-eyed among you will have noted that it's the Northwest Mounted Police, not the Mounties, because that's how they began. Really, my story is about the early period, not the subsequent period. So the first 50 years of their existence from 1867 onwards is partly about the creation of Canada. From about the First World War to now, they became a much more regular, normal police force. They're still and were and still a core part of Canadianness, and hence they're rather boring. So I'm sticking to the early period. Now, the early part of Canada, the only part that was really occupied it was around the eastern area, and it was a battles between the English and the French for control. The centre part, what we now refer to as the prairies, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Alberta, was, except for literally only a few thousand Indians, or First Nations as they're now called, was pretty empty. There were trappers there, uh, there were traders, and the rivers from, from Lake Winnipeg would take you to Hudson Bay. And so the Hudson Bay Company actually ran the centre of Canada for 300 years, very similar to the companies that, that ran trading empires, particularly in India. And the other important lie, I think, thing that keeps coming up is the 49th parallel, the border between Canada and America. So really, I'm going to be talking about the Mounties, whose place of operations was in the centre, the prairies and the northern part of Canada. A bit of Canadian history. First of all, discovered on St. Lawrence Estuary by Cabot. Cartier explored it for the French, and the French really controlled it for a hundred years or so. Hudson Bay built their trading posts internally. Then, as we know, Wolf, etc., the French lost their Canadian colonies, but still had a lot of people there. The US independence became a key date in the story because many of the loyalists, including some black loyalists, went north to Canada and stayed British. And only in 1867 did the Dominion of Canada get formed. And this did not actually technically include the Prairie Provinces. And then the country was finally genuinely stitched together in one piece when the railways connected Ottawa to Vancouver. So it wasn't all kind of waiting to be developed from way back. It's a gradual step-by-step -step process. And the Mounties played a key role in that. And we must remember that the Oregon Territory, which included British Columbia in 1825, was not yet British. Upper Canada, Lower Canada, meaning Ontario and Quebec and the Maritimes were the British colony of Canada. Hudson Bay Company controlled the interior, all the 
rivers that drain into Hudson Bay and then they could ship the furs off to Britain and the Northwest Territories, except for more trappers, was pretty empty. And that's 1825, quite late in our story in a way. Hudson Bay, it's worth another talk, the Hudson Bay Company, absolutely extraordinary. Any river that drained into the Hudson Bay was their territory. So it included Lake Winnipeg and a little bit into what is now the US, right up to the Rockies. And the reason why is that the Mississippi River Basin drained south, whereas Hudson Bays and other rivers drained into the Hudson Bay. Now, how do they get about? They got about with canoes. That was really the only way of traveling for long distances, carrying their pelts, carrying their furs, carrying the beaver furs. So an extremely important means of transportation in Canada. So 1867, we get close to the time of Confederation. 49th parallel was by then agreed. And the Hudson Bay Company, Rupert's land, because Prince Rupert was the, the, one, of, was one of the leading founders of the Hudson Bay Company in the 17th century. They're about to hand over their authority to the government of Canada. So if we look at how the British North American Act got passed, Canada, Ontario and Quebec later on, was ruled by the British government. They were colonies. They were given a little bit of local authority, but not much. And they were increasingly corrupt and so on. And the English and the French settlers fought with each other certainly the French settlers fought against British government. So the Durham report, 1839, said, yes, they're right. It's badly governed. We must encourage responsible internal self-government. 1841, Upper and Lower Canada, again, meaning Quebec and Ontario, were combined together. 1860s, the Fenians, driven by the Irish Americans, did raid parts of Canada. And there was genuine fear of a takeover by the USA. There was, at that time of their civil war, so it's a very good example of let's find an external enemy and attack that. And the external enemy, in a sense, was Canada. So there was genuine fear that Canada was at risk. And so 1867, there was the creation of the Dominion of Canada. And given the Durham report, given the unrest, this request was approved by London, very quickly got declared as the new country, the capital in Ottawa. And Ottawa ran the various national issues there were some provinces which looked after other issues like uh, education. And in a sense, foreign affairs was not driven by London, but London had still had a great influence on foreign affairs in the early days. The person responsible for the setting up of what we now call Canada was John A. MacDonald. Now, his reputation has remained fairly well intact. He was born in Scotland. He was the first PM. He'd been the PM of, of the Federation of Ontario and Quebec before that. He led the negotiations, got a good deal for Canada, secured the fact that the provinces became part of Canada. They could have become part of America, but they didn't. He certainly oversaw the building or started off the building of the railway to British Columbia, which tied British Columbia into the Dominion, the Confederation of Canada. But the point I've made already, and make it again, there was no guarantee whatsoever that British Columbia and the Prairie Provinces would become part of what we now call Canada. His skill, his, his ambition, his determination helped to make sure this happened. And he also, part of his uh, management of the rise of Canada, was to form the Mounties as a frontier force. 
Canada at around the time of independence. British Columbia existed as a separate colony of Britain. Uh, Hudson Bay Company was there with the rivers fairly clear, actually. The Red River settlement, very small, a couple of forts and towns on Lake Winnipeg, basically a semi-independent place run by the Meti, and I will come along to the Meti in a moment. This was the time when Alaska was still Russian. So the Dominion of Canada, I've made some of these points already. Uh, Hudson Bay Company gave up power to the new government. Canada began with Quebec, Ontario, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and I suppose Prince Edward Island. And the Northwest Territories were ceded to Canada as essentially colonies of Ottawa. Shortly after that, Manitoba was created, the Red River Valley Settlement, and a year later on, British Columbia joined on the promise of a railway. Later on, the Yukon joined, partly to control the Klondike Gold Rush, and only in 1905 did the Prairie Provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan join the Confederation or the Dominion of Canada. And what is not widely known, good quiz question, Newfoundland didn't actually join Canada until 1949. It was a UK colony. The country, 1873, just after the declaration of the Dominion, as the Mantis were being formed. What's interesting is the Northwest Territories all run from Ottawa. Now, there's very little up there except some Inuit, Eskimos, and some Indians, and a few trappers and traders who would get their trapping and trading down the Yukon River. It was essentially driven by the trappers and traders in the Northwest Territories who have been there now for several generations. There were a number of problems which needed to be solved to ensure the country was secure. It was increasingly obvious that a force like the Mounties was needed to exercise some control over the whole territory. Now, forgetting the north from the old Hudson Bay area is much bigger than the whole of France. It's biggest half of Western Europe. So it's a very large piece of geography. Fort Garry, which was the biggest town probably between Ottawa and Vancouver, 2,000 plus miles. And the Meti ran the government of Manitoba. The Meti were descendants of the early French trappers and Indians. They developed the Red River Settlement, traded with the Hudson Bay Company, and they were mostly Catholics. Now, the new government of Canada decided to spread its influence westward to secure the country, and partly to keep the Americans out, and partly to make sure that British Columbia linked up with it. Now, they had to negotiate with the Meti. They sent a team to negotiate with Real and his team, which was them there. But unfortunately, they sent a drunken orange man, an aggressive Northern Irish Protestant, who was not about to give in to these Catholic half-breeds, excuse my language, but that was the language they were using. Because they were led by this drunk, they attacked Meti Fort, which happens to be one of the strongest defended. They were all captured. And most of their leaders were sentenced to death. Rial said, no, we can't sentence them to death. We must keep hold of them. But the leader was so rude and so violent and attacked Rial with drunken insults that he was indeed executed. The government then sent a force to not crush them, but to negotiate with them. They realized that Louis Rial was, was somebody they need to work with, particularly if they're going to include Manitoba, the Red River Settlement in Canada. So he did end up negotiating Manitoba into the Confederation. And you could say, actually, he did rather well, because the, the settlement included safeguarding of the French law and language, but it meant that then Manitoba had to join Canada. 
Meti independence was at an end, but basically they were reasonably happy as long as they were left alone, and generally they were. And given that they sent Garnet Woolsey of Ashanti war fame to, quote, negotiate with them, he possibly realized that he was dealing with a real army and some real soldiers, and therefore he had to negotiate rather than fight back. But he didn't fight back. It was a pretty reasonable settlement. However, a few years later, when the settlers began to arrive in large numbers, he then did start a real rebellion, was defeated in a normal, in quotation marks, military skirmish, and was then executed. He thought he was a bit of a prophet. The French Canadians still think of him as a brave defender of French Canadian culture and rights, and the Anglophones think of him as a typical French troublemaker. As a result of this incident, and sending the army to suppress them, and having to keep negotiating with them, they realized that they couldn't keep sending colonial armies. They needed some kind of police force in the area. And one of, I suppose it was, um, Arnold Woolsey's team who was sent on to scout around the countryside. He was really more of a military intelligence than he was a fighting soldier. Lieutenant Butler said, in the Northwest Territories, the institutions of law and order as we understand them in civilized communities are wholly unknown. In other words, something must be done. Now, 1873, a little bit of Red River settlement now called Manitoba. The Hudson Bay Company is still trading, but there is no law and order. There is no government, 2,000 plus miles. Canada now existed. The prairies were uncontrolled. And there were, of course, a few trappers and Indians and trading posts, but not much. So they needed something to send to this part of the world to control the Indians, the traders, the settlers to make sure the very porous border with the USA was not overrun too frequently, and certainly to improve links between East and West Canada. MacDonald, who was the Prime Minister at the time, got reports from the prairies about the US traders providing whiskey from Chicago breweries to the Indians, to Crow and Blackfoot tribes. Two places, one called Fort Standoff and one called Fort Whoop Up. You can guess what they were like from the titles of the settlements. These were both settlements in the foothills of the Rockies. And of course, the spread of alcohol led to both random violence and fighting between the various Indian groups. As a particular event, in 1873, a group of Assiniboine Indians were murdered, I reckon 24 people died, in the Cypress Hills on the Saskatchewan Alberta border which is where Fort Walsh was later located. And American trappers and traders were responsible. And MacDonald said, we have to send a force to deal with this. We can't let this keep happening. So that triggered his establishment of the Northwest Mounted Police. It was modeled on the Royal Ulster Constabulary, a model which was very popular with British imperial managers, not necessarily popular with the Catholics of Northern Ireland. But the key point that it was paramilitary, armed, mounted, and trained and equipped for skirmishes on the prairies. So it was quite clearly established under certain rules, with a very clear mandate to go and keep the peace, guard the settlements, keep the Americans out, provide law and order, certainly as the settlers began to arrive. If you read this to the Mounties, there's three or four myths, foundation stories that are crucial to understanding the Mounties and crucial to their current rather good PR machine. And I've highlighted four or five of them I'm going to mention. What they did, how they established their role and their contribution to the story of Canada. 1874, they were founded. A group of them were sent off from Ottawa 
partly by train to Winnipeg and then sent off across the prairies. They trekked west on an 800 mile march across prairies to basically the foothills of the Rockies. Their immediate task was to investigate the killing of the Assiniboine Indians, and that was quite a, an important job to do. They took with them at least 275 men, horses, cattle, all supplies, and 300 plus, plus horses. So it was a major operation. And when they got there, where was there? There was nobody, there were no forts, and no there were one or two trading places, but really not much that you could call settlements, not much you could call trading posts, very few of them. So they created places like Fort McLeod and Fort Walsh. These were two of the sergeants in the original Great Trek, and they established two important forts that have grown into bigger cities since then. One of the forts they established was Fort Edmonton, which is now a very large, rich city in the middle of Canada. Now, when they were heading west, of course, it wasn't just a weekend stroll. All the equipment, all the kit, uh, all the ability to make food, to grow food even. And in the summer, it is place is full of mosquitoes and horrible things. In the winter, it is solidly frozen. So they got to Fort Dufferin and established a centre there, but they still had to get across the prairies to Fort Whoopup. As they left with all their goods and services, all their su supplies, field guns, they rather quickly discovered the weather wasn't particularly nice. Uncharted territory. One of the places they were headed, Cypress Hills on the Alberta-Saskatchewan border. But they did bump into a major storm. Now, the great storm in 1874 destroyed and spoiled a lot of their food equipment and a lot of horses were lost. As a result of this, they split their forces and one went sort of northwest and founded eventually Fort Edmonton. The other lot stayed south onto Alberta, to Fort Walsh, which they established because he was one of the leaders of that group, and to find Fort Whoopup. They even had to go across the border and pick up supplies at one of the American settlements at Fort Benton, Montana. America was much further along the settlement of the West. In Canada, there was virtually none. So there were towns and forts, and not all the way, but some of the way there were railway lines in the U.S., they got to Fort Whoopup, which was by no mean feat in terms of navigational skills, led by Meti guides who were rather good at this sort of thing. They knew the country much better than these new Mantis recruited in Ottawa. Many of them have probably never been on the prairies. There isn't why they should. And they got to Fort Whoopup and discovered that the whiskey traders had fled, but they did find a great amount of whiskey still there and busily destroyed it to the intense a disappointment of some very thirsty Mounties. I'm sure they kept some back for their own entertainment, but basically they were destroying great supplies of whiskey. Whiskey wasn't very pure, one has to say. And having established Fort Calgary, Fort Saskatchewan, um, Fort Edmonton, Fort Walsh, and the edge of the Rockies, it was declared rather quickly, really, that law and order was now firmly established on Canada's western frontier. Well, not really, but to a degree, there was a presence. It all sounds quite straightforward, but of course there was no source of supply. There were no farmers to sell them grain or cattle. They either had to grow it or go south to collect it from uh, Montana or uh, North Dakota. McLeod, the famous McLeod, after whom fought his name, and others nearly lost their lives in a blizzard when they once went south to Helena in Montana to get money and provisions for the almost starving garrison in Fort McLeod, which is southern Alberta. And they were saved 
by the field craft of their legendary Metis guide. Now, Jerry Potts was this legendary Metis guide. He was famous throughout the history of the Mounties and across the prairies. He spoke English, of course, as well as French and the local Indian languages. He was a horse trader, skills as a scout. And he took umbrage against the whiskey traders who killed his mother and is on record as having killed at least 40 of them and was a scout with the Northwest Mounted Police for 22 plus years. So without these kind of people, the Mounties' first few years would have been a total disaster rather than extremely stressful and difficult. But they did survive the first two or three winters in fairly appalling conditions. They gradually built their forts, they gradually managed to get their food supplies sorted, and were sort of able to declare themselves the guardians of the prairies. Fort McLeod, on the route with the road between Alberta and British Columbia, on the border, built in 1874, it's now a museum. So it's quite an important part of the history of the Mounties. There was a presence and there was a sort of a legal framework and it was beginning to do its job. But this time there were, there were Indians fairly well spread across the whole area and the whiskey traders had been to a degree dissuaded. The Americans had been to a degree dissuaded from marching across the border and declaring this to be part of America, which they could have done. So they were brave. The planning was not necessarily very good and there were so virtually no settlers for them to look after. But the story, therefore, of the expansion of the West, rather ironically, is to send a police force, not quite first, but early on in the whole story. The police force got there and the settlers arrived later. Totally different from the story south of the border. What's interesting about the Great Trek is that revisionist historians have come along and looked at it closely and said, oh my goodness, there is plenty to criticise. And one historian has described it as, quote, a monumental fiasco of poor planning ignorance, incompetence, and cruelty to man and beast, to which you kind of say, well, yes, that's probably true, but it worked. It was their equivalent, I suppose, of Dunkirk. It was a noble failure, but it has entered their folklore. It is true. The people that did it had to be tough and brave and determined to succeed, so you one has to give them credit for that. Now, having got there, maximum of 300 of them in total, they built their forts, and, and their first job, really, was to understand the Indians that were already there and to sort of slightly organize law and order for them or between them. And the, the next bit is really in two halves. The resident Indians, the Crow, the Cree, the Assiniboine, had, they'd adapted to the climate. They'd lived off the beavers and the buffalo on the plains. In most of the country, there were very few miners or settlers, although there were some trappers and traders. Now these trappers and traders used whiskey as a currency to buy the felts and furs from the Indians, rather similar to the way the British used opium to buy tea from China in the 19th century. Now, what was, what was good for the Mounties was that suppressing the whiskey traders was popular with the Indian chiefs. And Chief Crowfoot of the Blackfoot Confederacy said, if the police had not come to this country, where would we be now? Bad men and whiskey are killing us so fast that few of us would have been left today. The Mounted Police have protected us as the feather of the bird protects it from the frosts of winter, end of quote. Now, that clearly wasn't written by Chief Crowfoot. It was written by, let us say, the, the Mountie interpreter. But I think it does indicate that the Indians were pleased to see the Mounties because it protected them from even worse people, i.e. the whiskey traders. The recipe for the whiskey that was sold to the Indians, one popular mixture was a quart of whiskey, a pound of chewing tobacco, a handful of red pepper, 
one bottle of Jamaica ginger, a quart of molasses and a dash of red ink. Strychnine was sometimes added. The effect was said to be stunning. And of course, they not just sold furs there and put the whiskey, guns were involved as well. So it was a recipe for violence in exactly the same way that it was south of the border. What was interesting, some of the early Mounties, Commissioner McLeod and others, built up a bond of trust with the Blackfoot and bothered to learn their language and customs. The Indians signed treaties with the Canadian government, essentially giving up their land and opening it up for the railways and the settlers. Now, the history books are not clear as to whether the Indians knew what they were doing, but there is no doubt that they were keen to get the protection of the Great White Mother, i.e. Queen Victoria, and they were keen to have somebody to arbitrate between the disputes they had amongst themselves. And they're also very keen to get rid of the whiskey traders and the terrible Americans to the south, whose cousins, the Sioux, etc., are getting a seriously bad time. The history books report that the presence of the Northwest Mounted Police in their scarlet tunics played an important, calming role in the negotiation of the treaties with the Indians. I'm sure they did, A, because they were armed, but because they were seen, having got rid of the whiskey traders, seen as a more or less friends. And I think you can also say that the willingness of the Indians to give away their power was arguably a recognition of real politique. Their decision was also informed by the fact that the number of buffalo was declining. They, they could see that their way of life was changing inexorably and they had no real economic or military option. Nor, and very importantly, did they wish to be massacred and hunted like their fellow Indians to the south, for example, the Sioux. And the second part of this little chapter is negotiations with Sitting Bull. During exactly this period, around the Civil War and after, the Sioux had been fighting a losing battle against the American army and the American settlers as the settlers moved west. In 1875, the Indians were told they must move into the reservations allocated to them or become, quotes, enemies of the US. And as everybody knows, they made a stand at Little Bighorn in 1876 and killed General Custer and most of his troops. Now, obviously, they knew that retribution was on the way, so they moved north in their thousands, including Sitting Bull and his troop, into Canada. But unfortunately, they were long-term historical enemies of some of the local Indians and were also chasing the same diminishing herds of buffaloes. And the Americans were worried that they would use Canada as a base from which to attack the USA. And they were camped around what would later become Fort Walsh in the Cypress Hills. Now, in 1876, Sergeant Walsh and 10 Mounties, 10 or 12, it depends on what you read, traveled to meet the Sioux. And the Sioux told him they were tired of fighting and wanted the protection of the great white mother. So can you imagine Walsh with 10 Mounties, surrounded totally by 2,000 very angry Sioux, confirmed that they would behave themselves, follow Canadian law, and respect the rules of the great white mother. At the same sort of time, 3,000 plus Indians led by Sitting Bull arrived, and they were met by a group of six Mounties and given a similar lecture. And quite amazingly, the peace held, and Sergeant Wall, Sergeant Irving, and one or two others who featured in the long history of the Mounties, they were not attacked or pushed out or told to go away. They said, yes, we will follow the rules of the Great White Mother. The Mounties tried to arrange safe conduct for some of these Indians, particularly Sitting Bull's lot, back to the US, but the Indians were not at all tempted. They hated and did not trust what they called the Long Knives, i.e. the US cavalry. 
And after three or four years and the further decline of the buffalo and probably just sheer boredom, many of them did go home and accepted life on the reservations, but not a particularly happy result. They were encouraged to go by the Canadian government, which allowed them refugee status in the sense they could stay there, but not long-term, residential status, and that there were going to be no Canadian reservations for the Sioux. Bit mean, but again, rail polity. So among the last to leave was Sitting Bull, who very reluctantly went to join his comrades back on the reservation. He actually didn't stay very long on the reservation and made a lot of money by joining Buffalo Bill's circus. But he was killed in a brawl when Indian police tried to arrest him. And the phrase killed while resisting arrest has a very long history. So no Indian would doubt that he was murdered by US police. The Mounties behaved pretty well during this period. The Canadian government was less than generous. Sergeant Walsh, for example, who was trusted by Sitting Bull, was transferred out of the area when the Canadian government tried to push a bit harder and pretty much insist that Sitting Bull must go. And Walsh wrote at the time, in my opinion, he, Sitting Bull, was the shrewdest and most intelligent living Indian. He had the ambition of Napoleon and was brave to a fault. He was respected as well as feared by every Indian on the plains. In war, he had no equal. In council, he was superior to all. Every word said by him carried weight and was quoted and passed from camp to camp. Now that, from a policeman to an Indian rebel, is pretty high praise indeed. And to be fair, the Indians kept their promise, kept the peace. Indian wars, which the government had feared, were avoided. In other words, amongst themselves and between them and the colonial forces, mainly the Mounties. So the story is quite an interesting one and is utterly, utterly different from the Indian story south of the border. Now, only in about 1882 did their numbers increase from about 300 to about 500. So life for a Mountie was pretty tough. Poor accommodation, poor pay, poor food, and sometimes very tough camping-type conditions in the pretty inhospitable climate. It must have been a strange life. They would do nothing for weeks on end, and then suddenly they'd have to go out on patrol, sometimes with huskies in the snow, or in pursuit of American whiskey traders, or dealing with a dispute between Indian groups, and sometimes between Indians and the settlers. It was a very odd and difficult life for the early Mounties, but they did hang in there. And you might say, well, they sorted out the Indian question, they sorted out the whiskey trading question. What to do next? Well, <laughs> to do next was the arrival of the railways and the building of the railways across the whole country. And the arrival of the settlers is, of course, a very much intertwined business. And as I said earlier, British Columbia joined the Federation in 1871, early on, but it had been a promised a railway to link it to the east. They did have the alternative of joining up with the USA. Now, in the 1870s, there were very few people, white people, in the whole of the prairie area. Gradually, the forts were built and some became substantial, like Fort Edmonton, as I've said. And these were bases for the Mounties to go out to outlying areas and trapper camps and so on. But the Mounties were the representative of all branches of government. They did everything. They were the government in the small outlying areas. And the centres were trading posts and jumping off points for the settlers who gradually arrived. Communications improved across the prairies. The telegraph from Winnipeg to Battleford 
opened in 1876. Now that's several hundred miles. We then went on to Fort Edmonton, another 200 miles in the next year. Now to build communications 200 miles in, in one year is pretty impressive. The railway got from Ontario way off to the east, where the majority of the Canadians live, to Winnipeg, the Red River Valley on Lake Winnipeg, in 1877, and then kind of paused for a while. And gradually they spread it across the country. Now, it wasn't always totally joined up. The portage between two bits of railway. So it wasn't just, let's lay a railway. It was much more complicated than that. However, by 1883, the railway got as far as Calgary, which was 2,000 miles from Ottawa, which is on the edge of the Rockies. So it was not yet linked with British Columbia. With it, of course, came vast numbers of railway workers and assorted hangers-on, and gradually settlers, who quite naturally settled along the line of rail. Now, the last leg of the railways over the Rockies was very difficult, but took only another two years. Not bad for 600 miles over a mountain range. And railway camps were potentially rather violent places. And what the Mounties did, as the railway went over the Rockies, they created a travelling uh, detachment to kind of follow the railway camp as it moved west. And an ordinance was passed prohibiting drinking and gambling within 10 miles of the rail camp. And it seemed to work. Uh, and the difficult Rockies section was built pretty much on time. Now, labour relations, not just drinking and mucking about, labour relations in the camps was not always very harmonious. In 1883 and in 1885 were periods of unrest caused by wage cuts and the non-payment of workers. And the Mounties were forced to act as strike breakers, not a role they particularly relished, but since they were there to represent the government and the government wanted the railway line built, they were strike breakers. And in one incident at Kicking Horse Pass, they tried to arrest the ringleaders of a strike, but the ringleaders resisted and they were forced at gunpoint to stand back and the Mounties threatened to shoot at the aggressive and by this time completely drunk miners. And this threat worked, so they carried on laying track. But it has to be said the miners had a genuine grievance, unpaid wages and terrible working conditions where part of the daily existence. Indeed, it's reckoned that two workers die for every mile of rail, and more would die in the dangerous Rockies. And since this last bit was 600 miles, it does tell you a lot of people died during the making of the railway. But more or less peace was held, and that was substantially thanks to the Mounties. Famously, the last spike in the middle of all of this in 1885. But even though they got the railway to the Rockies in 1885, they had spent the next 10 years rebuilding a lot of very badly built bridges and embankments because they were done in a hurry and were not going to survive very long at all. So the railways had connected the country up by 1885. Meanwhile, as they say, the settlers were beginning to arrive. Plenty people came before 1885, but they were not always able to get a train to where they were going to settle. And what was interesting was that new varieties of wheat could be grown and harvested in the warm but very short prairie summer. So they had short stem, fast ripening wheat, which is now still there, and hundreds of square miles of wheat is grown today. So what was again interesting is the mountains were in place pretty much when the majority of settlers arrived and the railway had been built, places established, the rules of the game established, 
settlers began to arrive in large numbers. And the Canadian Pacific Railway was given 25 million acres of land around the railway line. And Europeans were offered a cheap uh, packages to come and settle on this land. You might well say, what happened to the Indians? Well, in some cases, the, the population was so thin, it didn't matter. In other cases, they were moved from their settlements to, generally to the north of the line, into the colder, less pleasant areas. In 1881, there were thought to be 7,000 Europeans on the three provinces, Manitoba, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. That's when I say the prairies, that's what I mean. 7,000 Europeans in the size of a large chunk of Western Europe and 30, 40,000 Indian, Meti, First Nation peoples. In 10 years, 90,000 people had arrived. And in another 15 years, a million immigrants had arrived on the prairies. So that is a, an amazing increase in the flow of people, amazing increase in the population of the prairies. And so it turned it from an empty land into a really, not densely, populated land with towns and villages every 20 miles or so. The settlements every 20 miles or so, because if you put your grain in the back of your horse and cart and walk for a few hours to a storage dump, you could do that in a day. You get 20 miles with your cart full of grain in a day, but to stay overnight, it was too far. So every 20 miles, there tends to be a small town. If you've driven across the prairies, as I have, that is, a lot of them are now pretty derelict, but every 50 miles is still in a significant settlement. Harvest with a reaper binder, putting them up in stooks, good old fashioned, between the wars kind of English farming, but over hundreds of square miles. And I say the trickle of settlers gradually increased until there was uh, well over a million settlers on the whole of the prairies from Europe. What was fascinating about this is that the Mounties, to say, were there. There you were, immigrant from Kiev or Poznan or whatever, and pushed out possibly because of your poverty, possibly because you were Jewish, whatever. You went to Canada on a cheap deal with your family. You got down from the train in the middle of nowhere, and there was a Mountie with a clipboard saying, oh, Mr. Mrs. whatever, welcome. I'm your friendly Mountie, and here's where you're going to go tomorrow. Stay in this hostel overnight. And by the way, give me your passport. I don't suppose they had passports really, but give me your papers. And they tick them off the list. Yes, you're on the list. If you have any problems, let me know. I'm the welfare officer as well. Oh, by the way, I'm also dealing with the issuing of seed grain. And if you've got any taxes to pay, I collect your taxes. So they were there running the thing, very like district commissioners in Africa under the British colonial period. Again, the contrast with the USA, just only a few miles further south, could hardly be greater. And so the, the prairies were settled peacefully. Winnipeg, which is where Fort Garry was the first settlement. Fort Edmonton, Saskatoon were built up by one lot. Fort Whoopup is near Bethbridge. Now that I think I'm right in saying is 800 miles. So it's quite a long way. The early settlement was in this area, not very much far north because it was just too cold and too hard to grow wheat. And there were some settlers and traders and trappers and then, of course, there were mines and minerals were discovered. But essentially, the early part was the 100 miles north of the border with, with the USA. 1895, Manitoba districts are the districts of the Northwest Territories, the old Hudson Bay Company. And each of these districts had their own little bit of government. The person running the government were the Mounties. They gradually established a little more in terms of central government, but the, the 
key to them was initially the Mounties. And one of them was the district of Yukon. And the Yukon is uh, full of navigable rivers. The Yukon River drains for 2,000 miles, keeps going into the Bering Strait. The trek into the Yukon was not a question of catching a bus to Dawson City. It was a major adventure and really very unpleasant and difficult. One of the things they had to do was go over the Chilcot Pass, and that was extremely difficult and unpleasant. Policing this provided another test for the Mounties, another of their foundation stories. Now, the Klondike Gold Rush started very quietly. Gold was discovered in the Yukon on Forty Mile River, just inside the Canadian border. Uh, a Mountie presence was fairly quickly established, but it was a small presence, and it was assumed that since the climate was awful, minus 77 in winter to plus 120 in the summer, this would put off, this is Fahrenheit, it would put off all but the most determined. It did. The population of the gold fields was only around 250 miners, mostly Americans and Canadians, and only a, a few hundred other Europeans in the entire place, again, mostly trappers and traders. So only a few mountains were needed to keep the peace. However, in 1896, three miners struck it lucky in Bonanza Creek near Dawson City and caused a stampede of new miners. Perhaps 100,000 set out, 40,000 arrived, and perhaps 4,000 found gold. Absolutely classic gold rush, lasted only three or four years and was virtually over by the end of the century. And I say the miners had to come into Skagway, over the Chilcot Pass, down the Yukon River by boat to Dawson City. Now that Chilcot Pass was dangerous. People fell off literally and died. And during the three years of the boom time, an estimated 3,000 horses and mules died or had to be shot following injuries. That works out at three a day for three years. Now, obviously, in a mining camp, you expect violence to be fairly high. We've all seen Western movies with shootouts in the gold fields and people stealing each other's claims. Well, some of this did happen, and the Mounties were there originally only 19, but actually it expanded to 250. So it was a fairly major operation for the Mounties. And of course, the government was interested in the fact they could collect customs dues on imported supplies, because we're all imported into Canada from America via Skagway. So raising taxes meant this operation could pay for itself, which pleased the government no end. The Mounties looked after the postal services, the gold records office, the claimants uh, whose claim was which. They would guard prisoners, they would run the banks, and they'd look after gold shipments. And they had, this is quite amazing really, they had a mail run with dogs. Now these dogs were often Labradors crossed with wolves, unlike today's lollopy things. These were tough dogs. And the mail run was a fortnightly event in 1898, the mail runs on sleighs traveled 64,000 miles backwards and forwards, delivering a two-week postal service via a frozen river over the Chilcot Pass and down to Skagway, 600 miles each way, generally taking 15 days each way in 30 miles relays. So quite an extraordinary operation. The mail must get through. And Dawson City was probably quite rough, but crime and violence are not part of the story, if you know anything about the Canadian gold rush, it's not full of stories of violence. 
and the shootouts we see in Western movies just didn't seem to take place. What was, what was interesting is they allowed gambling if it was conducted without violence, and they allowed the girls, quotation marks, to set up a camp across the river, away from the main part of the mining area. So in 1895, there were no murders and relatively few crimes in Dawson City. So again, the Mounties' reputation helped to hold the line and kept it fairly peaceful. They also had a very clever and sensible way of dealing with petty crimes. Minor offenders were sentenced to a few hours chopping wood for the Mounties' wood-burning stoves. And in one winter, they used a thousand cords of pine. A thousand cords of pine means a pile four feet by four feet running for one and a half miles. So they got through a lot of wood, but they had a lot of petty criminals chopping the wood for them. They also escorted gold shipments out of the gold fields down to the coast for shipping on to wherever. And no Mountie escorted shipment ever went missing. And this is, you know, well, well done chaps, but it's even more surprising when we realise that each shipment was worth millions in today's money and that the Mounties' pay was $1.50 a day, including a Yukon allowance. Even bank clerks earned twice that much and carpenters and skilled people like that earned even more. So quite surprising, some Mounties didn't run off with it. Now, one of the Mounties that led the Mountie force in the Klondike was Sam Steel. Now, he's one of these sort of heroes of the hour. He'd been on the great trek as a young Mountie, the beginning of their existence in 1874. He spent two years taming the Klondike and turned it from a tented city of mud streets to a more or less properly built town with proper sidewalks. And when he left, he was given a bag of gold by leading miners and thanked for his efforts to keep the law. So we wouldn't do that for most policemen these days. Now, the Klondike gold rush um, slackened in, in around 1900, and many of the miners went to chase their luck in new gold fields in Alaska. So the Klondike scene gradually petered out, and most of the population, including the Mounties, abandoned the place to the summer flies and the winter cold. The cold really was a killer. A Mountie patrol in 1911 in the vicinity of Dawson City got lost in a storm, and their bodies were not discovered until the melt in the following spring. One of the other side stories really is that Canadian Mounties, many of them volunteered for the Boer War. It was the first use by the British Empire of Canadian soldiers overseas. And 7,000 in all went to join the Boer War under the British flag. Five of them won Victoria Cross, including one Mountie. What was interesting also, that the Mounties joined the Canadian Mounted Rifles, which was a regiment, and Lord Strathclona's horse, which was a cavalry unit. As policemen, they were armed, trained, and mounted, and used to trekking across rough, wild country. In other words, they were perfectly suited to dealing with the Boers and their scouting parties during the war. The British never really recognised this, until kind of after the event, when they realised just how effective and useful and tough the Mounties had been. And that was part of the reason why they were given the title of Royal in 1904 after the war, but also as a recognition of their successes in Canada. The person in charge of Lord Strathclona's horse was Sam Steele, and he ended up as General Sir Sam, which means he was as formidable as he looked. He was also very critical of some of the British policies, including the concentration camps. And despite that, he was recognised as the sort of chap they needed in the British Army. 
that's the four or five myths that I wanted to cover and explain the background story of the mountains. And after the success of dealing with all the things I've talked about, the prairies, the railways, the settlers, the gold rush, then in 1905, the provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan joined the country as provinces, not as provinces of Ottawa. They were the independent provinces with their own government. And the question came, well, do we still need the Mounties? And by the end of World War I, 1920, their numbers had declined to about 300 again, which was the same number that left Fort Garry and Fort Dufferin on the Great March in 1874. And in 1916, there was a serious debate as to whether they should be wound up. Now, of course, this did not happen. In 1920, they were named the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and given dominion status, national and international roles. And gradually they built up their experience and they, they spread their experience across the whole country and did a number of other things to about 25,000 men and women today. Two or three more things I want to say. One is the amazingly effective PR story. How did they become so amazingly effective? And the other one I want to mention is they, if you like, grew into a normal police force, uh, which is fascinating to policemen, but probably not to the rest of us. Normal police forces perhaps do not have 500 snowmobiles, which the, the Mounties do have. They probably also don't have 30-odd fixed-wing aircraft for patrolling in the north. Absolutely necessary to get around some of the wilder parts of the country. Their role did expand and they became the federal police, still not Ontario and Quebec, but 200 plus municipalities and areas, airports, immigration, forensic laboratories, etc, etc, fingerprinting, DNA tests. The counterintelligence date has a bracket at the other end, started in 39 and ended in 84 because they were thought to be not very good at it. So it became a separate counterintelligence service and they deal with drug liaison and so on. So they become a, a large federal police force with lots of international connections. The other bit I wanted to mention briefly is the extraordinary ability to turn these foundation myths into absolutely brilliant public relations. Everybody, or their daughters, has heard of and or read Susanna and the Mantis. It's a lovely story. We've all seen films made about the Mantis. We've all seen pictures of the musical ride. So the PR machine, which is quite subtle, just keeps churning out good news stories for the mountains. And some of them, the song Rosemary, uh, the film in 1939, Sergeant Preston of the Yukon, even Monty Python's Lumberjack sketch, I think can be said as promoting the mountains. The Untouchables, a very good film. Due South, a mountie in Chicago with his dog called Wolf solving all sorts of impossible crimes, rather sweet-natured, good news story. So their ability to generate further publicity and popularity through the media and through popular culture is extraordinary. The musical ride, I've seen it in Ottawa. A, it's impressive horsemanship, but it's just a wonderful little tourist outing to see them at some event. And they still get a troop of people every year. I don't want to overdo good news stories. So there are one or two dodgy bits to their stories. And one of them, sadly, is the treatment of women officers. I mean, they were recruited as officers in 1974. Before that, lots of them as support staff. And a number of them have had problems with, if you like, merging with the culture of the Mounties. By definition, obviously, an extremely tough 
macho, outdoors, gun-toting culture. That would be part of their strength. Then integrating women into this would have been and was quite hard. Now, Corporal Galliford complained of um, sexual harassment in 2012. And the point is not so much that, partly that. She was not supported by the police force itself, who claimed that she was a drinker and a party girl who brought the problems upon herself. And there was a PR disaster, and as a result of which they had totally transformed their approach to bullying and harassment and have tried very hard to deal better with women. Now, women have not sunk without trace. There is, was a glass ceiling. The glass ceiling was broken in 2007 when there was, for a short period, a female police commissioner. Now, the reason for the short period is not really known. I think she may have been a temporary one and then wasn't given the substantial appointment. Their treatment of women now is better than it was, but still not perfect. There are also cases every now and again of their not-so-good treatment of minority groups. First Nations, meaning Inuit or Indians, have, have sometimes been quite harshly treated, and migrants have sometimes been harshly treated. I think adapting to the new realities of the last decade have been quite complicated, but the, the point in comparison with parts of the USA is they've absolutely tried hard to deal with these problems rather than bury them. So finally, the Mountie story is, to my mind, a absolutely fascinating one for a number of reasons. One is that the first 30 years of their existence was very tough, very difficult. Opening up the prairies was not straightforward. Some of the early recruits, Sergeant Walsh, who befriended Sitting Bull, Inspector McLeod, who bothered to learn about the Indians and obviously respected them and was respected by them, and Steele, who started on the Great Trek, tamed the Klondike, and then ended up as commanding officer of Lord Strathclona's horse. These had to be formidable characters, and they had to be able to both endure physical hardship and show leadership roles and contribute honorably and without thievery to the opening up of Central Canada. So I think the, the essential story of the Mounties is fairly positive one. It's important to realize that they were not just, there was Canada and they formed a police force. The Mounties helped to build the story of Canada, the myths of Canada, if you like, and they became to exemplify Canada. And my final and obvious point is that this story is so utterly different from the opening up of the prairies of its southern neighbor. This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.